Uh, you know those travelators down at Riverdale or at the Arana Mall? You know those automated moving walkways that connect the car park and the shops? Have you ever tried to walk on them in the opposite direction to the way that they're going? So, for example, have you ever tried walking up to the shops on the travelator that is, in fact, moving down to the car park? Now, if you've ever done that or seen someone do it, you realise that, of course, it can obviously be done, but it takes a bit of effort, doesn't it? You can't just stand there. You actually do need to do a little bit of work. Otherwise, the travelator will simply take you in its direction rather than the direction you're trying to go in. You need to do some work against the flow. Now, friends, this morning, God is going to call on us to do some work against the flow in the sense that in this morning's passage, God is calling us to live our lives in a direction that is, in fact, the complete opposite direction to the one that our culture is wanting to take us in. See, I'm sure you noticed while it was being read that this morning's Bible passage Uh, the overarching idea is pretty much sexual conduct. From verse 9, which talks about the sexually immoral, not inheriting the kingdom of heaven, right through to the last verse, verse 20, which tells us to honour God with our bodies, uh, this is a passage pretty well dominated by the topic of sexual conduct. And as such, it's a passage that flows on pretty closely from last week. Remember last Sunday was all about that particularly nasty, specific case of sexual immorality that was happening in the church. And uh, today, Paul is now broadening out in his discussion of that as he says that all of the church, not just the wicked guy from last week, all of the church need to avoid sexual immorality. And in verse 18, God says it very simply, very clearly. Maybe it be helpful to look at the verse yourself. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. That in a nutshell is what this morning's passage is all about. Here is our to-do list for the morning. Flee sexual immorality. And friends, to be told to do that in this day and age, in our culture, that is most certainly the equivalent of trying to walk the wrong way that a moving walkway is trying to take you. Because we live in a culture that is moving us to embrace sexual immorality. We move in a culture that, regarding sex, says that as long as it's consensual, any form of sex is okay. Have it with whoever you want, however you want, and get it as often as you can. God, on the other hand, disagrees with that. Uh, Repeatedly throughout the Bible, God tells us there are important boundaries. Uh, Sex is only intended for pleasure between a man and a woman within a marriage. It's not intended for pleasure before you're married. It's not intended for pleasure on your own with pornography. It's not intended for pleasure with someone of the same sex. It's not intended for pleasure with anyone who's not your marriage partner. Sex is only intended for pleasure between a man and a woman within marriage. Now that's what God says. And it is incredibly countercultural. You will be openly mocked for thinking like this. You will be made fun of at school or at work for saying that you are staying a virgin until you're married. 
even for those who are married, fleeing sexual immorality may mean denying ourselves from things that we would quite like to do. But that's what God says. Why? Why should we bother? Because it's going to take a fair bit of effort to do this. Well, this morning's passage, God gives us two reasons why. Mindly, I suspect they're not the usual reasons that are often trotted out. Let's see what you reckon. Reason number one, why should we flee sexual immorality? It's not who we are. Verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now you might think that we live in a pretty sexually charged culture nowadays, and we do. Uh, So did the Corinthians back when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Corinth was a city full of temples, and many of the temples had heaps of temple prostitutes associated with them. And so prostitution and casual sex was a very big part, very natural part of life in Corinth. No one thought twice about it. It It would be unusual in Corinth to think that you couldn't have sex with lots of different people in lots of different ways. Paul wants to emphasise, however, that for the Corinthians in the church, that's all in their past. Uh, In verse 11 he says, that is what some of you were, past tense. And then in the original language he actually repeats the but three times. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. Which, by the way, is a wonderful lesson. I mean, think about it. Here is Paul saying to a bunch of people some of whom had been sexually immoral, some of whom had been male prostitutes, some of whom had been adulterers, some of whom had been homosexuals and thieves and drunkards and swindlers and probably anything else you can name. And here is Paul saying to them that they are now cleansed. They are now washed. They are now spotless before God. It's a lovely statement of the cleansing power of Jesus' death. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, Please don't think that you can't be one because your life is so dark and your sins are so terrible that God couldn't possibly take you in. If you are here and you are ensnared in some sort of sin, please don't think that you can't be forgiven. No matter what you've done, we can be washed clean. It is exactly as he's already talked about in chapter 1. Jesus' death on the cross enables us to be forgiven and saved because as he hung there Jesus took my sin your sin the sins of his people on himself so that forgiveness could be received and so Paul can say to a bunch of people who used to be all those things described in verses 9 and 10 he can now say to them that because of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God they are now washed they are now sanctified and they are now justified It's a great testament to how the message of the cross is the power of God to save people, which is what he's already pointed out earlier in the letter. But as delightful as all that is, Paul's main point here seems to be to emphasise to the Corinthians that sexual immorality and all those other things, it's what they were. Now they are washed. Now they are justified. Now they are cleansed. 
And the implication is, well, then be cleansed, be pure in the way that you now live. Be who you are now, not who you used to be. Which is a very powerful thought. Flee from sexual immorality. In a sense, not because you have to, but because now you want to. Because of who you are. And so when we're tempted, we expect more of ourselves. We tell ourselves, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to be who I used to be before Christ. I'm going to be who I am now in Christ. It's a powerful thought. Mind you, it's a very challenging thought as well. Because the flip side to all of this is that if you are not interested in fleeing from sexual immorality, if you are quite happy to give in to temptation and to be sexually immoral, or those other things that are listed there, what does that actually say about who you really are? The story is told of Alexander the Great, who after a major battle had a soldier dragged in front of him who had been found guilty of deserting his post during the battle. Uh, the account goes that Alexander the Great asked the soldier his name and the soldier replied, my name is Alexander, sir. And I don't know, maybe in the back of his head he was hoping for a bit of a lenient sentence because he shared the same name as the great commander. The story goes that Alexander the Great leapt from his chair, grabbed the man, violently shook him and shouted in his face, change your life or change your name. Change your life or change your name. We call ourselves Christians and we don't flee from sexual immorality. Change your life or change your name. Because the sexually immoral is simply not who we are anymore. But Paul goes on. It's not only who we are, it's also we need to realise that as Christians we are not our own. Verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. Now, sorry about this, we're going to need to focus a little bit here because these verses are a tad hard to get our heads around because they take us into a mindset, they take us into a way of thinking that was actually quite common back at the time when Paul wrote this letter, but it's not a particularly common way of thinking nowadays. See, Corinth was just down the road from Athens, Athens being the great centre of Greek philosophy. And very trendy at the time Paul wrote this letter was the Greek philosophical idea that the spiritual world and the physical world were very different and very separate. One difference being that the spiritual world is eternal, but the physical world is not. And so when we die, the thought was we have an immortal soul that will keep on living, but our bodies will disappear. Now, all this has led the Corinthians to say things like, verse 12, everything is permissible. And again, halfway through the verse, everything is permissible. Now, the NIV, which most of us have, it's got that in quotation marks because Paul is probably quoting a slogan that the Corinthians themselves were saying. Look down, there's more quotation marks in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. 
Now, the newer version of the NIV, which just came out a few months back, I think it's a better version because it actually puts that whole sentence and not just the first half of the sentence in quotation mark because probably the whole sentence is a slogan which the Corinthians used to say. And it's all coming out of this idea, if we can get our heads around it, that the physical and the spiritual are really different and really separate. And that they are so separate that you can pretty much do anything you want at a physical level and it won't affect you spiritually. And so food, stomachs, stuff to do with physical bodies, God's going to destroy it all eventually. And so what you do with them doesn't really matter so much. That type of thinking has some pretty clear spin-offs for sexual immorality. Because if the physical and the spiritual are really separate, and the one doesn't affect the other, well, go for it. Have sex with heaps of people. Keep going to the temple prostitutes. It's only a bodily function. It's, not a, it's only a physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. So the Corinthians seem to be saying. Paul disagrees. He says you cannot divorce the spiritual from the physical like that. He says we are body and soul, and you can't have one without the other which is what he points out when he starts to talk about the resurrection from the dead in verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Now he's making the point here, and it's a point that he's going to come back to and say a lot more about in chapter 15, but he's making the point that just as Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, so will we. We will not be bodiless spirits floating around the place like the Greeks thought. It is the Greek philosophers who believe in the immortality of the soul. We as Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And Paul is stressing it here to emphasise the connection between body and spirit and you can't have one without the other. If we belong to Christ, both body and spirit belongs to Christ. And therefore what we do with our bodies matters. So look at Paul's opening thought just after he quotes those slogans. Look at the end of verse 13. The body isn't meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord. Look down at his final concluding thought at the end of verse 19. You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. Now you see the overarching idea? The the idea that the body is for the Lord, the, the idea that our body is not our own. It's because if we belong to Jesus and we are indivisibly body and spirit, it's not just your spirit, it's also your body that belongs to Jesus. Your body is not your own. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. Again, this is a very powerful thought. Because I reckon a lot of, Christi- a lot of even Christians, we almost seem to have this mental picture that Jesus is some sort of house guest in our life. You even hear people talking like, you know, I invited Jesus into my life. Or, you know, invite Jesus into your heart. This sort of phrase sounds like you're inviting some sort of house guest to come and stay with you. He is not a house guest. He owns the house. You don't invite Jesus into your life. You submit your life to him. And there is nothing in your life that is off limits to him. And that includes our bodies. Our bodies are owned by him. Our bodies are meant for him. And the implications here in Corinth 
for sexual purity are enormous. Because if we, including our bodies, belong to Jesus Christ and we use our bodies then for sexual immorality, well then there is a sense in which Christ himself is now involved in that immorality. And suddenly the thought of going to a temple prostitute has just become unbearable. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Now, friends, are you seeing the logic flow? I'm not going to pretend that there's not some difficult verses in this little section. But do you see the logical flow here? If we are a package deal and we are a whole person, body and soul, physical and spiritual, we belong to Jesus. We are owned by him. Then for us to be physically involved in sexual immorality, it's the same as if Jesus himself was involved in it and Paul says that is just too unthinkable to consider. And so we flee from sexual immorality because we aren't our own. What we do with our body is not ours to decide. Just like what we do in any of our life is not for us to decide, it's for Jesus to decide. Which I actually wonder is a little different to the way we as Christians often think about sexual purity. In fact, I half wonder whether both the reasons given in this passage for fleeing from sexual immorality, do you reckon they're a little different to the ones that are usually trotted out regarding this topic? In the sense that the sort of stuff that Paul is talking about here is far more Christ-centred than perhaps lots of our reasoning. I mean, often in Christian books on sex or Christian talks that you listen to, often the big point is the main reason given for being sexually pure is because how special our sexuality is, how self-destructive sexual immorality is. It said, you know, our sexuality, it's such a special part of who we are. We should treasure it. We should save it for marriage. And anyway, sexual immorality is so self-destructive Uh, casual sex, pornography, unfaithfulness in marriage, all those things do so much damage. It wrecks families. It produces psychological scars, unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, and all that is true. Sexual immorality probably costs our society more than alcohol problems. It's an enormous issue. So please don't understand me. Uh, All that is true, but... Those sorts of reasons aren't particularly Christian. That's the sort of stuff that you could say to a non-Christian as well as a Christian. uh, Paul, when he's talking to the church family here, he has Jesus far more at the centre of things. Because as God's people, friends, we are not simply living out a morality. We're not living out a set of rules and do's and don'ts, no matter how wise or sensible they might be. We are living out a relationship with Jesus. And so when we are called on to flee from sexual immorality, we do it because of Jesus. We do it, even if it does set us on a collision path with our culture. We do do it, even if it's going to mean that people will make fun of us. We, we do it, even though it will take effort and energy. Because you did notice that the, that the word is flee 
from sexual immorality. It doesn't say simply resist. It doesn't say avoid. It is flee. It's a very proactive word. It's about recognising even potential danger and staying away from it. It's about proactively avoiding even the thin edge of the wedge that is not yet serious but might potentially become serious. Fleeing from sexual immorality is all about serious effort, serious thought given to what you wear and who you are spending time with and how long you are spending time with them and what you're watching on television and what websites you're visiting. And who might be good to keep you accountable in these things? Fleeing from immorality means actively doing stuff to work against the direction that our culture is wanting to take us in. But friends, as the family of God, we're up for that because we are not motivated by morality. We are motivated by a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are motivated by who Jesus is. For he is our Lord and our Saviour. He is our Lord. And therefore we are not our own. Everything is his. Body included. And he is our Saviour. We have been washed and sanctified and justified. So we flee sexual immorality. Because the sexual immoral, that's who we were. Not anymore. I'll pray. Father, thank you for helping us in this really big area of life. Father, so often we feel the push of our culture taking us in directions in our sexuality that we know that you don't want us to be taken in. Thank you for reminding us of Jesus this morning. Thank you for reminding us that he is our Lord, owning all of us, and that he is our saviour, that we are saved. Father, by your word and spirit, help us to be the people you have called us to be. Amen.